Right, well, good morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing uh, looking at the book of Colossians. If we're going to be in chapter 3 uh, this morning. If you have been uh, watching our show on Facebook that we have every Sunday night, uh, we've also been going through the book of Colossians as well. So some of this will be something uh, that you may already heard before, uh, but there's going to be uh, some differences in it. And we've already, again, we already looked at chapter 1 and in chapter uh, 2. And if you recall at the very tail end of chapter 2, and really before verses 20 and 23 that we have on the screen here, Paul references, uh, as he puts it, the circumcision of Christ, all right, that they have uh, put off the body of sins, uh, and, and that being uh, baptism. And so in that, we see uh, Paul describes that as a death. We also see that in Romans 6 as well, a death and a burial. And beginning in verse 20, he says, Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the, the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul is saying, okay, you've died with Christ, and so why do you subject yourself to these things, all these different teachings, these different doctrines? Uh, we recognize that uh, they had a continual issue with uh, Judaism and Judaizing teachers, and... There's also references here to this idea of asceticism, I believe that's how you call it. And uh, it's basically this idea in which you are um, um, causing your physical body to suffer. Think about maybe this do not touch, do not taste, maybe not eating certain foods, so on and so forth, which is similar to the Jewish ideas that we've seen throughout scriptures as well. And so that they could um, become more enlightened spiritually. And Paul says these things, There's that's all this stuff is useless. It, it may appear good. It may appear like there's some logic behind it, but uh, it's no good for you. And he reminds them, don't get involved with any of this stuff. Why? Because you're died, you have died with Christ, which therefore takes us to chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. And so you've died with Christ. And so think about this for a minute. If Christ died and he was raised, then that means, carrying along this logic, you would be raised as well. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay, so again, just, he's continuing this train of thought. You died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, and so where is Christ at now? He's sitting at the right hand of God. And so he's no longer on earth, therefore you're still on earth, but you don't set your mind on the things of the earth. You set your mind on the things where Christ is. Set your mind on those heavenly things, on those things above and he says again, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's no longer, you're, the old man, and we'll talk about this later on, is no longer 
is no longer who you are. That has been that has been done away with. Rather, you're a totally new creature. You change your actions. You change the way uh, that you think. It's just you're a totally changed individual. Rather, that's what you should be when you become a Christian. In uh, Romans 12 and verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed, don't be like the world, but be transformed. And this word, this Greek word for transform is where we would get, we would get the word metamorphosis. And so y'all have been in elementary school, y'all have talked about uh, caterpillars uh, changing to butterflies, and that process is called metamorphosis. All right, so something that is, I mean, people don't really, I mean, you wouldn't want a caterpillar to be crawling on you. That's just something about that. It's just not a very pleasant experience. But then there's this complete change through metamorphosis, and you see this butterfly, and everybody likes butterflies. All right, so something that looks, that you would never expect it's completely changed to something that, uh, you know, there's much more pleasant, much more beautiful than what it was before. And this is the same idea. It's also the same idea, uh, same word used when Jesus was transfigured as well. So, again, a complete change. You're the old man. It's sin, wickedness, and now you're transformed. It's all those things. Your, your mind is set on those things uh, which are above. We also see in Ephesians 4 and verses 22 through 24, it says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, so again, we see this writing, Paul's writings, he's always talking about this old man and this new man, this change that takes place. And we see the old man, what does it say? It grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. But again, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new man. And that new man was created according to God and what in true righteousness and holiness. So again, we set our mind on the things above, whatever is pure, whatever is holy. I think that's, what, that's in Philippians, that whole list of the things in which we ought to set our minds on. And so we ought to do that, again, because we died with Christ. And then, so we were buried with him. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with Christ. And therefore, when he appears again, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear uh, with him in glory. All right. So it's just, again, the same idea, similarities between what happens with Christ and what's going to happen with us. Moving on to verses 5 through 11, it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds 
and then put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. Again, notice that phrase again, renewed in knowledge. We just read a verse talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind as well. So we're renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so we've put to death the members which are on the earth, not putting to death your body, but put off those things which are sinful, which are wicked. And he gives us this list, uh, beginning with a fornication. And I'm not going to get much into that, but I think we all kind of have an idea of what that is, that sexual immorality. It's just seemed to be a very big problem in that time. It's definitely a big problem in our world, and it just seems like it's getting increasingly worse and worse to have all that stuff just being, uh, it seems though, at least in this country, that those ideas and those temptations are are just bombarded on us constantly, and it just becomes more and more. And I read a book several years ago, a lot of y'all probably already read it, it's called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, and this was written decades ago and it's kind of along the same lines of the book 1984 and, and, and those types of books but the, the guy really nailed it on the head as to what uh, people would act like in the future because um, it's all about me it's all about my pleasures uh, the you know men and women just doing whatever they want to with one another the, the family unit is laughed at it is like if you talked about the family it's like you were I mean, you were talking bad about somebody. It's repulsive. And, uh, you know, just rampant consumerism, all that type of stuff. And it's like, man, they really nailed the head on 2023 about what the world would kind of look like. And it was a problem then. It's a problem now. And it's probably not going to, I don't I don't see any, any way in which it's going to get much better for us throughout uh, the coming years. And... This is the things in which we ought to give up. And this associated with the world. This is what the world loves. And we ought to put those things away. Uh, uncleanness. Now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. And again, we're just looking at all of those uh, things uh, that Paul says we ought to be giving up. 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse 7, chapter 5. Verse chapter 4, verse 7 says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And there's other verses that kind of talk about uncleanness in reference to and contrast that with with holiness. And you know, generally this is just uh, unholy things. Uh, You know, just another word for sin. For wickedness, uh, anything that is impure, we ought to give up those things. Passion, should have left my Bible open. It's that same chapter in verse 5. Uh, and I believe, if I turn back on there, he's talking about uh, these passions of lust. Let me get back here real quick. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, uh, I go back to chapter 5 every time. Verses 5 says, Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so I, I believe this is really kind of reference what he's talking about here, that 
I think we all recognize that passion is not uh, always a bad thing. We can be passionate about something, passionate about my job, hobby, whatever, passionate about deer hunting. We understand that. But this passion that's, you know, again, this passion for evil desi- or evil desires, these lusts, um, you know, we think about maybe some passion in- involved with maybe some type of anger, some type of outburst as well, all right? And so we have evil desire as, uh, again, and uh, I think passion is evil desire as well. Also, uh, covetousness, we're kind of tied together. And uh, this idea of covetousness is avarice, fraudulency, it's greediness. We're just wanting other people's stuff. And notice what he says uh, about covetousness. Let's go back to covetousness. Uh, it says, which is idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry. Um that when we are wanting uh, this stuff, the material things in this world, and it's to the—I mean—it's to the point where we're putting those things above God. It's just plain a simple idolatry. We don't—we may not have the, you know, the totem pole or the, you know, the image set up in our front yard worshiping some type of God, but it's the same idea. We're worshiping our stuff. We're wor- worshiping the newest iPhone or the newest truck or whatever it may be. It's the same exact idea. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked uh, when you lived them. Interesting. If you go through this, I, I, I like when that... A lot of times they talk about sons, your sons of disobedience or the son of Satan or even the sons of Abraham, that it's not a, he's not talking about a physical lineage, right? You're not the direct offspring of this, but rather this is what you do. This is who you are. These are the things in which you imitate, that you are continually living and disobedience and so therefore Paul describes them as the sons of disobedience he says the wrath of God is coming upon uh, these individuals the judgment of God is coming but rather you yourselves once walked uh, in those things again you have died with Christ raised with him and you're putting off uh, those all of those evil wicked things but he gives us another list that they are to now uh, put off the first one is uh, anger. Uh, let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 31. Ephesians 4, verse 31. I'm getting all up into Matt stuff. Uh, it says, in verse 31, he says, And let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And so this, is, this verse is pretty similar to, to, the, to the things uh, that we were to put off in the next uh, couple of verses here. All right, so we are to put off uh, this anger, and this clamor, evil speaking, so on and so forth. And so, what we'll kind of see as we go through this list of what the kind of the disposition, the personality uh, that the that Christian should have. That this is not something that um, that they are known to be a very um, you know very wrathful. Uh, people, if they're generally pretty calm, pretty peaceful uh, individuals. Wrath, I think we all understand what wrath is. We see, we just read a verse talked about the wrath of God. It just seemed like that's just the next click up from just anger. That it's just, 
it's time to go. We're fighting now. It's, I mean, it's, I, if I remember correctly, this word, one of the descriptions of this word in the Greek was this uh, breathing. And you, I kind of get this picture that somebody just kind of swole up and he's huffing and puffing and he's fixing to hurt somebody. All right. Again, we ought to put off that as well. We see malice. Uh, which is evil or desire to do evil. Again, we see that uh, people being acting with malice towards one another, that it's this intent to do harm. Uh, you think about um, maybe different types of murders. They have like first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and it all has to do with the uh, intent. And these people plan this stuff out. We're working on it. We're actively engaging in that. Uh, we also see blasphemy. And... Uh, you know, a lot of times when we think about blasphemy, we think about blasphemy towards God, and that is a lot of how the scriptures use that. We see it as blasphemy towards God. We see it as blasphemy towards the word of God or the name of God. But think about this. This word in Greek literature uh, is used to mean uh, abusive speech, personal mockery, blasphemy, that... We can blaspheme God, blaspheme God. We can blaspheme Christ. But think about how we may talk about others. You know, do we ever mock individual, other individuals? Do we ever have abusive speech towards other individuals amongst us? Right? Maybe in our workplace. This is the same idea. All right. And so now we're getting to, uh, uh, you know, this this idea of anger or this, you know, these these outbursts of wrath, these things that culminate in our mind, and we're starting to see these things that are, you know, a lot of times are what we say, all right? It's in our speech. Uh, filthy language, which means this idea of vile conversation. In Ephesians, I believe it's, uh, Paul will say, um, talk about this idea of corrupt speech, right? That, we, that let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. This is the same idea. Is this useful? He also go on and say uh, in Ephesians that basically we need to speak those things which are edifying. And so when we're speaking, again, if we're speaking about some other individual, speaking about something else, is it building up or is it tearing down? All right. If it's not edifying, it's probably ought not to. It, well, it should not uh, come from our uh, our mouth and. When you think about that, and you start thinking about the stuff that uh, you may say or could say that's not edifying, if you really think about it, you probably ain't going to say a whole lot of stuff. It's going to cut down the amount of things that you say in a day way down, all right? And so, if those, again, if, if, we're, if, if we're using this language, if we're blaspheming, if we're, ha- if we're speaking these corrupt things which are not edifying, we need to repent. This is all characteristics or uh, of the old man, which the things in which we need to uh, do away with. And then we see lying as well. All right? And I think we all understand what that is. All right? So, again, look at these, all these, this list, with that other, combined with that other list. This is all things associated, again, with the old man, things that we ought to have nothing to do with a Christian. Verses 12 through 17, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, 
If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? So we're to put off certain things. And then Paul, verse 12, he says, well, put on these things. All right? First is uh, tender mercies. I think we all understand kind of what mercy is. Uh, Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it is within one's power to punish or harm. All right? Think about God and the the mercy that he extends to us, all right? There are things in which people may do us wrong, but are we always looking to immediately punish those individuals? Or if we can, all right, if it's in our power to do so, do we extend mercy to those individuals? Paul says we need to put this on. Kindness. Let's look at Titus uh, chapter 3 and verse 4. Titus chapter 3. Right, some of you probably already know where I'm going with this. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he, he saved us through his washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Which it's kind of interesting when you think about it because we talk about the love of God, we talk about the mercies of God, but here uses the word kindness, a description of God, that this was a kind act uh, towards man uh, when he uh, did that. And you think about it, I think we all kind of understand what kindness is. Uh, you know, somebody described as a kind person, they're always acting nice. Uh, they're very pleasant to be around. Uh, we're not just, you know, we're not just, um, you know, grumpy. We're not just, you know, in a bad mood. Uh, we're not uh, very loud and obnoxious. We just have a very pleasant demeanor about us. And we're always looking uh, to do those things which are kind uh, to other individuals. And we see that description here with God, uh, that this was an act of kindness uh, towards people who, uh, there's there was no reason uh, for him to show this kindness to. Uh, humility. Uh, Philippians 2 and verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better uh, then himself again. I'm, I'm reading New King James. We don't actually see the word humility here, but we see that there. Uh, that we're not putting ourselves on a pedestal. It's not all about me and, and my ego and what I want. We're lowering ourselves. Uh, we're humbling ourselves. Uh, we think about humbling ourselves before God. We're putting ourselves lower than Him. This is what we ought to be doing, showing humility towards one another, towards our brethren. And we ought to be working on uh, putting our wants, our wishes, below uh, the wants and wishes of our brethren. And that could be kind of hard to do. I mean, it's, it, you know, if you, 
you know, if 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 you're wanting something done a certain way, some or you know, some you know, maybe the walls painted a certain way on the church building, uh, that it can be kind of difficult uh, to do that in in some situations. But rather, we ought to be looking uh, in ways in which we can lower ourselves and put the wishes and esteeming others higher than ourselves. Uh, meekness. And uh, the best definition I, I've seen for meekness, and I, I, and I, I continue to use it, is the idea of strength under control. And that this is not uh, cowardice. And, you know, it's, I think sometimes it can be mistaken for cowardice. Uh, but obviously this is not the case. Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 5 says, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. We think about how Jesus acted, what he could do. He could call legions of angels to rescue him be it he didn't uh even throughout uh throughout uh his trials uh show trials really what he do you know he could have laid it out for him but we don't see that and we see what he could have done and we see what he did do that he kept his mouth shut that he uh, did not act out in any way. He just kind of controlled himself. And you think about what can go on in our lives, any type of, of hardship or whatever, that we just kind of control ourselves. We contain ourselves. We don't make a show. All right? And I think this kind of shows what meekness is. And I think the best example, again, is with Jesus. We also see Moses being called a humble man as well. I think that he's a great example of meekness as well. And then also we see long-suffering, which long-suffering means to suffer long. We're patient, we're forbearing uh, with one another. I think if you got a large, uh, well, we got a group, even a small group, and especially I think it's more prevalent in a large group, you get personalities. And it's, you know, some personalities can be abrasive. You think about it, even beyond that, uh, uh, people that may be, uh, holding in the false doctrine and how you deal with those individuals as well requires a great deal of patience, requires a great deal of long-suffering, all right? And so, let me go back. And so, again, he says, you bear with one another, you forgive one another. If any has a complaint against another, what do you do? You forgive. And he says, but above all these things, uh, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13 real quick. I don't have it on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, beginning in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, it says, uh, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So you see this description of love that Paul is talking about in, in chapter 13, and yet we see what love does, and it's a lot of what Paul just said for us to put on. Uh, that love kind of encapsulate all of these uh, things that without love, or we're not going to be extending mercy, not going to be humble, not going to be patient with one another. And without that, you know, what do you have? Think about a husband-wife relationship. If you don't have that, I mean, it's 
it's definitely possible. I mean, it's doable for you to stay together, but it's going to be difficult. All right? And so here, he's not talking about a husband-wife relationship. He's talking about this bond amongst brethren. That if we don't have love for one another, it's going to be incredibly difficult to stay together. All right? If we don't have these characteristics, which we should have individually, I mean, as an individual, because that's what Christ, God, wants us to have, but it's also necessary for us as brethren, for us to work together as a unit. All right, and so again, that kind of gives us another reason as to why we ought to be putting on these characteristics and putting on love. All right, and with that, we can have this complete, perfect bond. And then he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. There's several verses in the scriptures talking about the peace of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That even in the midst of, I mean, terrible things going on around us, I can have peace, uh, and people just don't understand that. But I want us to also look at the context here that he's talking about, you know, brethren being together. He just talked about this bond of perfection. Uh, we were called to this peace uh, in one body as well. I think he's also talking about the peace that we have with one another, that we all should be striving and, and, and working on having peace with one another. That ought to be our end goal. Sometimes we just can't have it, all right? Sometimes it's not possible, but this is what we're working on. We're always looking for ways to have peace with one another and not looking for ways to divide ourselves or to puff ourselves up and to you know maybe have the preeminence among other brethren. We're always looking for uh, this peace. And then he goes on, verse 17, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. All right, so we ought to, the word ought to dwell in us. We ought to be growing in knowledge of it. And then he says, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is a, a verse that we look at a lot in regards to singing. And just like uh, Jerry had mentioned earlier at 9 o'clock, we see the reason uh, why we're singing, all right? We're singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, all right? So we're worshiping, praising the Lord. That's the, you know, that's, that's the foremost what we're doing. But what are we also doing? We're teaching and admonishing with one another, all right? We don't sing songs because it sounds good. I think there's a lot of times that people like certain songs because it sounds good, that it has a nice beat and flow to it, all right? And, and they don't think what what we ought to really be doing, all right? That same song that may sound good, it just may be saying things that just absolutely are not true, all right? But while we're singing, we ought to be teaching, all right? Remember, we're teaching, we're admonishing one another. You think about the Wednesday night, we have the invitation, we have the invitation song. A few minutes again, we'll have another invitation song. What is that for? All right, it's to get people thinking, right? We pick certain songs, that, and by reading those words, people will uh, hopefully examine themselves, whether they're not Christians or they are Christians, whether or not they stand right with God, all right? So that's admonishing, that's teaching. And also these songs ought to be, it's not here, but, you know, edifying. Uh, it's that same idea, edifying to others, edifying uh, to ourselves as well. Okay, and then, but then we see that we are to sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord at the end of the day. Again, 
we're worshiping, we're also teaching, admonishing, edifying uh, one another with these songs. And he ends this up by saying, if whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think that's a great summary. Uh, just summing it all up. Whatever we do, we do it by the name of Jesus Christ. Do it in the name of Jesus. We're doing it by his authority. If we're always going to be doing something, we need to justify it in some way. You know, We need to justify it through the word. This is what the Lord has laid out for us, and this is why we do it. And if we don't, if you have no justification for it, we are not, we're simply not doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's keep on. Verses 18 through 25. Finishing up the chapter, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And so he ends this chapter by identifying several groups of, in, of people, all right? So we have the husbands and wives, we have the children, and then fathers and children, okay? And fathers and, and bond servants, excuse me, all right? And so he gives, he begins by giving uh, instructions to the wives and the husbands, all right? We see this, and, and I immediately think, oh, uh, People today don't do this. I mean, those of the world just don't, all right? Uh, generally, during that time, you probably still had this kind of description, even amongst those that weren't Christians. Um, but a lot of times, it seems as though these, re- these roles are reversed amongst husbands and wives. But he begins by saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting uh, in the Lord. Uh, we recognize throughout Scripture, and this is not going to be an exhaustive study, but of the place that... Their wives have amongst husbands. Husbands are ultimately the, you know, very the, the the top authority in that family unit, and the wives are to be submissive to them. But we also recognize that this is not similar. It's it's similar. I, I think of of an eldership that the 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 church members have to be submissive to the elders. But also, the elders are not lording over uh, those church members as well. Because we see this in the next passage, all right, that you submit, but it's not just some type of, you know, you're not just a slave, you know, for uh, for the husband's uh, every will and whim of the husband. Because you see, he, be, he begins by saying, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter uh, towards them. In Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, he says, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how much did Christ love the church? Well, he was willing to die for it. All right? And so, husbands as well. Uh, their attitude towards their wives is just not a, just, uh, you know, just an individual for you to use however you want to. You ought to be kind towards them. You ought to be uh, uh, merciful, uh, extend grace towards them uh, as well. All right? He, he says, and don't be bitter towards them. 
Okay, children, he says, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Again, I think that's pretty clear in the scriptures what the children ought to be doing, that they ought to be obedient to them in all things. Again, this is well pleasing to the Lord. But he he says to the fathers, don't provoke uh, your children. And it's this idea, this Greek word kind of means this idea of to arouse uh, the children. And, and, the, and it seems like what he's trying to say is like the children are to be obedient to the parents, all right? But it's not some sense in which you are just constantly on your children, constantly nagging them, uh, browbeating them all the time. And if you do this... They can become discouraged. You know, it can affect them. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they are extremely hard on themselves. We think about maybe they're just discouraged spiritually. All right, maybe that you will turn them away from the Lord in in acting uh, the ways you do amongst them children. All right, so you ought to obey your parents. It means parents ought to be disciplining, but be careful with that uh, when you do it, uh, and so that they won't be. Uh, discouraged. He ends by talking about bond servants, all right? And I think we recognize during that time there were slaves. Uh, we also had uh, similarities to indentured servants as well. But these bond servants who are Christians, what does he tell them to do, all right? He tells them basically to continue what you were doing before, all right? You are working for these masters. You continue working for these masters, and you obey them. But you're not doing it as men pleasers. You're not just doing it because you may want your master to look at you and say, "Man, he's he's a good one," or, or whatever it may be. But it says that we're doing this sincerity in heart because this is the right thing to do. That we're fearing God because this is what God wants us to do. All right, and He says that God wants us to do these things heartily. We do it as to the Lord and not to men. And then the Lord is going through, from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, all right? That's what we're working uh, for. And, you know, uh, uh, we see where it's uh, directed to bond servants, but I think this is applicable to just us today as em- employees, that we have bosses, and we can have bosses or... or, or um, Work, uh, you know, workmates that are just can be unbearable, right? That they just they can just grind your gears and they do stuff and you're just like, that makes zero sense. Why are you telling me to do this? This is the the best way to do it, so on and so forth. We can think of a lot of examples, all right. But again, it's the same idea that we don't just do the bare minimum. If somebody says something that we don't like, we just don't disappear and go on a two-hour lunch break. Uh, we continue to work, and we tr- we continue to do uh, our work to the best of our abilities. And as Christians, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear here that, you know, there's we may not be the best employee, but we ought to be some of the best employees uh, that we have when they when our employee looks at us uh, they ought to say he's I want to keep him he's he's a good one or she's a good one all right because we're doing those things to the best of our ability and I'll tell you what uh, bosses notice that you may not be the fastest one but they can tell when you're giving it your all okay all right they can tell when you're giving a hundred percent they can tell when you 
when you're out there in 100 degree heat and you're sweating and it looks like you might pass out, they know you're giving it your all. They're giving you're giving it the best shot. All right, and that ought to be our, our attitude that we're going to do the best that we can do. All right, and and remember. Uh, that the one who does wrong, so we don't act in this manner, the one who does wrong will be repaid uh, for what he has done, as there is no partiality. And we don't have it on the screen, but beginning of chapter 4, which I, it's, it seems to be a terrible chapter break, but the very beginning of chapter 4, he talks to the masters of these servants as well, that you be fair and just with these bond servants as well. All right? So we see that there is... I guess you would say balance. There's not, it's not a one extreme or the others uh, towards the husbands and wives, towards the children and parents, and also for uh, the bond servants and the masters as well. But that finishes up the chapter. Uh, I guess the next time I'm up, I'll be looking at chapter 4 unless somebody else hits it. But I hope it's been useful for y'all. I, again, I think that the main point of this chapter is he's telling... The individuals, you were raised with Christ, and now you act according to Christ. You're a new creature. You act uh, in accordance with that. And so uh, for us as Christians, you know, it's very easy to uh, get away from that. We've seen that first list talked about, you know, fornication and all those other things. And... Those things, I think, are much easier to give up than the lying and the malice and the anger uh, because that anger and the lying or whatever can just come up very quick in a moment's notice, all right? It's very easy to do that, especially with the things you may be hearing out in the world, all right? And so, again, if we're caught up in that, uh, if there's any need for us to repent of anything we need to confess, uh, we certainly would want you to come. Uh, and if you're a, not a Christian and you, and you want the hope that the Colossians have, uh, we certainly like to discuss with those things with you as well and, and get those things all uh, dealt with. Uh, but we offer this invitation now for anyone who may have need as we stand and as we sing. Will you come?